Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Wisdom Awakening. I'm your host, Bishop E.W. Jackson. Great to be with you again today. Well, look, we're going to spend some time in the Word today. Um, but before I get there, I do want to mention one thing, which I'm going to get into more in my radio program uh, later today at 1 p.m. Eastern Time for The Awakening on American Family Radio. I'm going to get into it then. Uh, but I want to at least just spend a couple of minutes uh, dealing with this. Um, I'm sure you all know there was an editorial in the University of Virginia School newspaper by some students arguing that all vestiges, symbols, statues, names of Thomas Jefferson should be removed from the University of Virginia campus. Now, this is not the first time we've heard this. You know, we saw the, the statue of Thomas Jefferson defaced and, and so forth. Now, this raises a profound issue, which I said I'm going to get into in more detail because I have some thoughts about this that I just don't want to take the time to get into now because if I do it, I'll, t I'll use the whole program up. But... Here's, here's the thought I at least want you to grapple with and just think about a little bit today. Why are they so determined, they, meaning the left, to destroy uh, all respect, honor, um, celebration of American history, its founding fathers, our triumphs, now, anything they think we've done wrong, they want to amplify that to the hilt. I mean, they want everybody to be aware of that and how horrible we are. But when it comes to our virtue, our nobility, our integrity, our honor, the things that we have done that are historically noteworthy, they don't want to talk about that at all. They, in fact, they want to denigrate that. They want to destroy that. They want to have that operate in the minds of our people in, in an entirely different framework. And, and basically the framework is America's founders are evil and we should not in any way be acknowledging them. So let's go back to, to the first point I want to make. There's just two points I want to make and then I want to go on to make others. So if, if you can tune into the radio program because I'll have more time to, to discuss this, particularly in the, in the opening monologue. Number one Thomas Jefferson is the founder of the University of Virginia. Now, how in the world do you remove from the University of Virginia as if it is illegitimate for him to be in any way associated with it when he's the one who started it? I mean, that doesn't make a bit of sense. It, it really, it's a testament how poorly educated our young people are. It really is. Because here again, folks, I, I don't mean to draw too attenuated a relationship, but I think this is entirely appropriate. They're behaving like communists. Communists like to reshape history because what they're really trying to do is affect the thinking of people today. And by lying about history or twisting history or perverting history, to get people to see history the way they want them to see it, 
they can also get them to see life today the way they want them to see it. So Stalin was famous for eliminating people who, he, who fell out of favor with him from pictures, from all historical records and archives. Uh, they were famous for lying about things that had happened in the history of Russia and the Soviet Union in order to get people to think a certain way about the Communist Party. Th this, is, this, is a, this is a common communist tactic because they have no regard for truth. Truth does not matter. The only thing that matters is the communist agenda. And I'm not saying all these kids are communists, but I'm saying they have imbibed enough Marxism, enough of its approaches and values that they're behaving as if they were card carrying members of the communist party, because that's what card carrying members of the communist party would do. They want to alter our perception of history in order to alter our acceptance of the things that they want to do with us today. Thomas Jefferson is the founder of the University of Virginia. It's one of the things that he wanted put on his epitaph. He wanted it put on his tombstone. In fact, he wanted that. In fact, he didn't even want it that he was president of the United States for two terms. He didn't want that. He wanted the fact that he had founded the University of Virginia on his tombstone. That was extremely important to him. The education of young people. He had a passion for it. And he built a university that is at least, well, I think one was, once was one of the premier educational institutions in America. In some ways it may still be, but in other ways it's lost its way, just like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and other universities that were started with noble purposes and degenerated into just, just absolute, just moral and spiritual and intellectual confusion. You can't separate the University of Virginia from Thomas Jefferson. He founded it. Now you want to debate about his life? Fine. You want to critique his life? Okay. You're, you're welcome to do that. It's a free country. We have a first amendment. You're welcome to do that. But trying to sanitize the university that he founded from all association with him is to really lie about history. It is to say that students attending the University of Virginia in future generations, if these people were to have their way, would not know that the University of Virginia was founded by Thomas Jefferson because they would see absolutely no mark of his legacy. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't make sense to anybody who's thinking. But these little pinhead left-wing professors and the students that they've been allowed to indoctrinate um, are, are just, I mean, they're, they're just full of cotton in their heads. They just don't, they can't think straight. I've said before, I'll say it again. It really is cult-like behavior where we all agree to a view of reality that bears no semblance whatsoever with reality as it is, but we all agree that this warped, perverse view we have, this is reality, and then anybody who contradicts that, they're the problem, they're the crazy ones, or they're the bigots, they're the haters, they're the racists. But we who have agreed to this cult-like view of the world, oh, we are the enlightened ones. We are the ones who see life the way it really is. Every cult thinks like that. And we are, we are in a, our country right now is gripped with a cult-like epidemic 
of leftist, godless, secularist, atheistic thought, which, which has permutations that go out like, like tentacles, strangling truth wherever it's found and, and strangling uh, all of the wonderful values of our constitutional republic that made it possible for us to become the most successful nation in human history. So that's number one. I mean, Thomas Jefferson is the founder of the University of Virginia. And, and would to God that people would stand up and say, look, we're not sanitizing the University of Virginia from the person who founded it. It's a university. You want to debate his significance. You want to debate his values. You want to debate his behavior. Fine. Let's talk about history. Let's talk about what Thomas Jefferson did. Let's talk about what he didn't do. Let's talk about where we think he was right. Let's talk about where we think he was wrong. But we're not getting rid of Thomas Jefferson. He founded this university. I haven't heard those voices as yet. Uh, so, so I'll may mind perhaps be among the first out there to say there's no way since Virginia, the University of Virginia is a state institution, there's no way on God's green earth that I would stand by idly and allow them to divorce the University of Virginia from the legacy of Thomas Jefferson. That is insane. So that, that's the first point I want to make. Now, second point, and then I'll go on to, to, to get to the word. And it's this. And this point, it's certainly no less important than the first one. It may be more profound than the first point, because the first point is really pretty obvious, I would think. But here it is. We live in a time when we want to, quote unquote, contextualize everything and everybody. We're having an epidemic of crime right now. And we've got George Soros prosecutors all over the country who are releasing people back on the streets after they've committed vicious crimes, vicious crimes, put people at the point of death and they're out the same day. The, the person they attacks in the hospital, the criminals out walking free the same day. Now what's, what's the motivation and the thinking behind that? It's this, well, you know, they're really victims, born into poverty, raised in a single parent family. They're drug addicted. They're uneducated. They didn't have the same opportunities, quote unquote. Now this is the left talking, not me, the way they would talk. They didn't have the same opportunities that white people have because of course, sadly, most of these vicious crimes, not all, but most of them are being committed by Americans of African ancestry, by black Americans. But. But, but you have to understand they're, they're a victim of society. They're a victim of racism. I say contextualizing because we're putting them within the context of their time, their environment, the circumstances into which they are born and in which they live. Of course, that's what the left does. And most of us have accepted that there's some validity to that, obviously. I mean, I talk about the breakdown of the family as one of the generators of these young monsters that are terrorizing people in the streets of our city. I'm, that's contextualizing. I'm saying, you know, these kids don't, they're not born to go out and murder people. Not they are born in sin, but, but they're not born to be murderers and carjackers and robbers and racists. 
but they are matriculated and culturated into that kind of behavior by the circumstances in which they live. And once they start doing that stuff, they got to be punished like anybody else. I would say you lock them up. But oh no, oh no. The left is quick to tell you why they shouldn't be locked up. And yet, they want to reach back 175 years, because this goes beyond, um, uh, this, actually, you know what am I saying? They want to reach back a quarter of a millennium. I was thinking about the Civil War. But they want to reach back a quarter of a millennium. And they want to critique people who lived at that time. And they don't want to take the context of their times into consideration. So let me just give you a couple of points about the context of their times that you and I need to be aware of in evaluating them. Now, I'm not saying this excuses any wrong thing any founding father ever did. They were human beings, imperfect, just like you and I are. But the slave trade began around 1590 with, with the Portuguese. It started in Europe and was really going fairly full force within a few years after the Portuguese discovered the African slave trade, which they, by the way, which they were introduced to by Africans. They didn't go there and see Africans and say, hey, you know, let's enslave these people. The African Muslims primarily of Northern Africa told them that the slave trade was more lucrative than gold. They had gone to Africa to mine for gold, but they convinced them that the slave trade was more lucrative than gold. They could make more money trading in people than they could mining for gold. And so they joined in with the Northern Africans and began to buy and sell African slaves, which had already been going on in Africa before the Portuguese arrived. And it had been going on, by the way, for hundreds of years. And as I've pointed out many times, slavery all over the world had been going on for thousands of years without anyone starting a worldwide movement against slavery as immoral. It was simply the way it was. Nobody questioned that the conquered get to enslave the conquered, that the conquerors get to enslave the conquered. Nobody questioned it. You questioned it, you died. And the, the, we have very few instances uh, in recorded history of slave uprisings. The most famous is Spartacus arising against the Romans. And by the way, they were all Europeans. They were all quote unquote white people white people enslaving other white people. And my goodness gracious, that goes back, what, 1,500 years or more? Slavery was ubiquitous. It existed all over the world. So Europeans are introduced to this trade. Now, the first settlers don't arrive in America until the early 1600s. So now this is going on for, oh, approximately 15 years 20 years, um, 1619 was when the first indentured servants who were Africans arrived. So 30 years before the first Africans arrived on the continent of North America, 30 years. Settlers had already been there, was it 16, no. Yeah, 1619, right, exactly. Settlers had already been there for what, about 15 years at that point. But the slave trade is going on in, in Europe, 
in fact, they say that the that the the um, the indentured servants who arrived in 1619 on the continent were not originally bound for the continent of, of the of North America. They were originally bound for Europe or somewhere else and ended up getting waylaid uh, and, and and ended up in North America. Here's my point. Thomas Jefferson. Oh, I forget the date Thomas Jefferson was born. But when Thomas Jefferson became of age, it was at least 120 years later. 1740s, 1750s. Thomas Jefferson went, and actually he wasn't of age then. I'm, 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 I'm making him older than he is. So what? 140, 150 years later. He is born into this European colony, okay, this European colony that has accepted slavery as, a, as just a reality. It's been going on for oh, well over 100 years, almost a century and a half. He's born into that, right? Now, what, what was he expected to do at that point? So he's taught from an early age that this is the way it is, that we Europeans, we British particularly, are superior to these Africans. They serve us. That's the way God ordered. Da, 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 da. Whatever. That's the way he's taught. He's taught this from a child up, right? And then he becomes an adult. And now he's got, he's inheriting land and that land depends upon slave labor to be worked. And it's worthless without the without the, the labor that's needed to work it. And he just kind of accepts this as the way it is until people begin to raise objections. And then he, as an adult, begins to see that there's another side to this story. And maybe this is not right. But he's deep in it by that time. He's deep in it. He's dependent upon it. Now, now put yourself in his position. And I said George Washington was, I think, 10 years old when he inherited 11 slaves from his father who died when he was young. Put yourself in this position. We're willing to make excuses for some kid who goes out and knocks somebody upside the head and almost kills them or shoots somebody or, or, or rapes some woman or carjacks a car with a violent uh, 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 attack, takes drives cars away with children in the, in the car seat in the back, leaving the parents stranded along the side of the road, had the car having been taken by gunpoint. And we, oh, well, that, oh, that's, we, we, we have to understand. They're victims of racism. Well, I mean, you know, in that analysis, Thomas Jefferson was too. George Washington was too. James Madison was too. Because they were victims of an ideological a framework that taught them that this was perfectly good, perfectly fine. No questions about it. It was the order of the world. And by the way, the whole world pretty much agreed. Whether you were enslaving Asians or Africans or Europeans or whomever, the whole world pretty much agreed. And these idiot pinhead professors at the university are not teaching their children what I just taught you, not teaching their students what I just taught you, what I just told you. But, but, but isn't it obvious? And then add to that the fact that our founding fathers, almost all, not all, 
but almost all, by the time of the Declaration of Independence, including Thomas Jefferson, understood that slavery was morally reprehensible and indefensible. And Thomas Jefferson wrote in the original version of the Declaration of Independence, a complete denunciation of slavery in Georgia and South Carolina, particularly said, we will not sign with that denunciation in it. Because they knew that that denunciation was the beginning of the end of slavery if they allowed that to go forward and they stopped it. But Thomas Jefferson, although a slave owner, although steeped in the institution, although having slaves himself, having inherited slaves, he was willing to write a founding document that denounced slavery as an evil institution, which King George had prevented from being dismantled. And he was stopped from doing so. Was he conflicted? Clearly he was. Clearly he was. He was economically dependent upon the institution, and yet he admitted on, in, in, in many of his writings that it was an indefensible and unsustainable institution. He said it's like having a wolf by the ears. You can't hold him and you can't let go. Now what does that say? That says a man who understand, understands he's in a serious conflict. Do you think our kids learn any of that? No. We don't need to know the nuance. He was a racist. Hey, take his statues down. I mean, folks, I'm going to stop there because I'll use up all my time with this. And I do want to get into the word. But I'm going to pick up on this because I got some other points I want to make about this, which I think are very, very important. By the way, this is some of the kind of things we're going to deal with in September and celebrate American History Month and really begin to tell the truth in a balanced way about our history. Okay. All right. Let's come to the word. Let's come to first Thessalonians. Uh, we're in chapter three. Uh, and we talked about verses, uh, one through three, you know, the last verse being no one should be shaken by these difficulties for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In other words, this is part of what happens when you submit yourself to Almighty God. You deal with the persecutions and you deal with the afflictions that come with the commitment that you've made. So she says, so, so don't, don't, don't worry about me. Don't, don't let this shake you. Don't, don't let it shake your faith. Don't let it shake your commitment. This comes with the territory. Fourth verse in uh, first, first Thessalonians chapter three. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know, in other words, he told you that just like I'm telling you that now, you know, I've said before, perhaps you've heard me say it. If you've never been persecuted, if you've never had anyone offended, if you've never had anything happen to you, anyone come against you because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you ain't doing it right. <laughs> because Jesus said you would suffer they that live righteous shall suffer persecution. He didn't say you might. He said you will. So he said, so beware when all men speak well of you. You know, we got these popcorn preachers who are so busy trying to be liked by the New York Times and the Washington, the New York Lying Times and the Washington Compost that, that they can barely, if, if at all, get the truth out about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. They want to mealy mouth it and sugarcoat it and universalize it and well, well but you know uh, like when when one preacher who I will not name on my program famously was asked by Larry King but don't 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 Christians say that Jesus is the only way 
Uh, and he answered, well, well, yeah, Larry, but there are many ways to Jesus. Ugh. So if you're doing it right, you're going to have some tribulation. I remember one time, uh, this is up in Boston, um, I was holding a meeting to deal with, with community violence. I, folks, I've been talking about the same things for many, many decades. I'm believing God that I'll have an even greater impact before I leave this earth. But it's talking about community violence. I mean, there were murders happening all over the city of Boston. I was going to have a meeting uh, with the community to talk about ways of quelling this violence and the things that needed to be done. I've talked about the same things I've talked about, talking about now, particularly we've got to rebuild families. We've got to strengthen families. These, these kids need fathers in the homes. In the meantime, we've got to figure out ways to create substitute fathers who can help mentor them to keep them away from the negative influences that cause them to become gangbangers and murderers and drug dealers and thieves and, and, and career criminals. And I was going to hold this. I don't want to hold, I don't want to, well, you know what? I'm not sure which institution it was. It was a very prominent one, and I won't mention the name because I could be mistaken about whether, for example, it was the Boys Club or the YW, YMCA. But, but anyway, so I applied to, for space to hold the event. And they literally told me, we're not letting you hold our event here because you're pro-life and we don't agree with you. And I said, well, this is not about abortion. This is about violence in the streets of our city. It's about, about trying to help our youth. We don't want you here. You're pro-life. I'm serious. I was told that. I had to find someplace else to hold it. See, I mean, that's persecution for righteousness sake. I didn't care. I mean, I know the person was wrong to say that and to do that, but you think, you think that changed my position? Well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't speak up so much about the life issue because, you know, some people are like, I don't care. It's right. I'm standing on God's side on this. God knows those babies before they're born. But at any rate, fifth verse says, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Now, you know, boy, this is a really interesting text, isn't it? Because I, I, I always remind Christians when I'm teaching texts like this, the word of God wouldn't say it if it weren't a danger. I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. I want to make sure that the devil has not tricked you and caused you to step out of faith and to start walking in the flesh. I wanted to make sure that you were secure in the faith. See, that's what discipleship is all about. This is the heart of a pastor saying, I want to make sure that you remain mature. I'll tell you, I've said the greatest joy I really believe of any Christian, any pastor, my greatest joy has not been being on television, not been doing what I'm doing now, though I certainly am fulfilled by this, is what God called me to do and is fulfilling for me. But my greatest joy, my greatest joy without any, without any equivocation, I can say this, is seeing the life of a person transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. It just doesn't get better than that because that has eternal significance. I mean, right now, we, I've talked about my new granddaughter. You know what our, what, what our main prayer is for her? Of course, we want her to be healthy. We want her to be, 
We wanted to, to be educated. We wanted to be prosperous. We wanted to be a good child. We wanted to be saved. We wanted to come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Because that is the ultimate goal. That's the ultimate joy. And you don't want people to go in the reverse. So therefore, the ultimate sorrow, the ultimate pain is to see someone who's supposed to be a Christian drawn away by the tempter. And I tell you, saints, I, I, it, believe me, it gives me no satisfaction to admit it, but I can't tell you the number of Christians who at one point in their lives seemed to be saying all the right things, doing all the right things, and then suddenly something draws them away and they walk away from the, their faith in Jesus Christ. They, they basically throw away their salvation if they really had it. They throw it away. I've seen it. The tempter tempts them. And the labor that I put into them seems to be in vain. Now, my prayer is that those people will ultimately find themselves and come back. And by the way, let me just be clear about something. I've had my moments since I've walked with Jesus Christ. I've had my moments where I know I've done some wrong things. There's no if ands or buts about it, some things that weren't right in the sight of God, said some things, thought some things, done some things, okay? I've been walking with the Lord. I said come uh, this December, was it 2020? December, it will be 46 years, 46 years. But you know what? I have never, ever, ever considered walking away from Jesus, ever. I mean, not ever. And I know I'm far from a perfect human being, but even in my worst moments, even when I messed up, I knew God loved me. I knew I was saved. I knew I belonged to him. And I knew there was nothing in this world that was going to make me give up that salvation. So I would repent of anything wrong I did and turn back and say, Lord, forgive me. Just like David said, Lord, renewing me a right spirit. I didn't do what David did, <laughs> but, but you get my point. Yes, indeed. I, I never questioned my salvation. I never questioned the reality of God. I never questioned that Jesus Christ had died on the cross for my sins and that he loved me and, and wanted me, that he was alive, that he rose from the dead and was alive to lead me, to guide me, ever. And yet, I've seen people do it. It's not, it's not messing up and sinning. That is the ultimate issue, because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The, the issue is what you do after you mess up. What you do when you miss God. I, that's going to do it for me today. God bless each and every one of you. I love you. Pray for me. I'll be praying for you. In the meantime, stand up, step up, speak up, refuse to back up, because we cannot be defeated if we will not quit. Because we are on God's side.